What happens when the engine falls out of your car in the middle of the road? How does an injury and an exotic dancer teach a young man a very valuable lesson? Each month at Hopewell Theater, questions like these are answered when a rotating cast of some of the most hilarious and moving storytellers around take center stage and tell all. Recorded live at Hopewell Theater in Hopewell, New Jersey, ladies and gentlemen, this really happened. Well, thank you, thank you. Spontaneous applause, I love that, thank you. Uh, my name is Joey Novick, welcome to This Really Happened. Thank you. This is our uh, fourth or fifth show, but it's our first show in 2019. Which, I mean, a couple of very exciting things happened in 2018. Uh, number one, uh, we had another year of, um, an, of 365 days which has been consistent except every four years, which I think is really cool. And let's see, the Democrats took back the House. So I sensed the politics of the crowd just slightly in that. And uh, I don't know, I was uh, also very exciting that uh, another historic moment in Congress, that for the first time in Congress, there's a historic number of very few white old men. So, I feel very, yeah, right, yeah, right, you. I feel very unrepresented, okay? Immediately. But I do feel very represented by my, one of my favorite members of the Senate, Bernie Sanders. I feel Bernie Sanders, as another Jewish person from Brooklyn, I feel he represents me in, uh, in the Senate. So, speaking of, uh, just by applause, how many people have been to one of our uh, storytelling shows before? By applause. Welcome back, and how many people uh, uh, are here for the first time? Welcome, 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 I'm so glad. So uh, this is, um, well, you know, storytelling is the world's oldest, um, I guess, avocation. Uh, thousands and thousands of years ago, when people got bored with each other, they're sitting around the cave, they're sitting around the fireplace, and they told each other stories. You know, the person who is the storyteller uh, could have been the religious figure, could have been the uh, spiritual uh, griot, could have been the head, could have been the, uh, maybe the uh, chief of the tribe, but it was always a very good storyteller. Somebody who could weave a good yarn, somebody who could uh, tell a good story was very, very powerful. And after our show, we've been doing a feature, and we've got a lot of people coming up here. So we have five excellent storytellers for you. And to let you know, at the end of the show, we have a feature that we've been doing each week from the first week called Two Minute Tales. If you are inspired to come up and tell your own story at the end of our show, we will give you two minutes on stage to tell your own tale. So you get, to see con you get to see some stories, you get to uh, spend the evening with me, you get to, uh, and then you get to tell your own tales. So I am, uh, I'm gonna uh, kick off by telling a, um, just a very uh, brief story about my own uh, family. My um, dad, when he um, married my mom, in 1948, which uh, last year they would have been married 70 years. 70 years, okay. So my dad was able to do this. My dad was able to touch his tongue to his nose. Can anyone do that? 
Anyone in the crowd? Some of you can do that. I maybe see some of you. So my dad could do that. His sister Rose could do it. My uncle Sammy, his brother, my uncle Harry, his brother Harry could do it. So spontaneously, at my parents' wedding in 1948, July 4th, 1948, my dad got the idea that he should organize a Novik tongue-touching-the-nose picture for the wedding. So he gave like five bucks to the photographer. They got all the people in the family lined up. There was like seven or eight of them, and they all stood there like this, touching their tongue to their nose. And, you know, this became sort of after a while a regular thing. If there was like um, a bar mitzvah, I guess about five years later, my cousin Melvin was bar mitzvahed, and they organized again. They chased down the photographer. They gave him five bucks. They put everybody on the stairs, and everyone could do that. And that picture became a regular Novik family tradition. Every time there was a wedding, there was a bar mitzvah, there was a gathering, a Passover Seder, they would bring everyone together who could touch their tongue to their nose. So, flash forward to 1963, my brother Paul is getting bar mitzvah. And I really, really, really want to be on the Novik tongue-touching-the-nose picture. But alas, at the age of eight, I cannot touch my tongue to my nose yet. So my father said to me, when I said to him, Dad, I really want to be in the picture, he said, well, in order to be, in, in order to get, uh, touch your tongue to your nose, what you need to do is you need to brush your teeth. Here's the secret. You need to brush your teeth and your tongue every single day, two or three times. When you do that, all of the gook in your mouth will just be out of your mouth, and your tongue will just slip up and touch your nose. I'm very excited about this. So every day, eight years old, little Joey Novick, I'm standing on my, on my bench and I'm looking into my mirror and I'm brushing my teeth and brushing my tongue and cleaning and I'm stretching and I'm going, nah, 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 and I can't quite do it. Every single day, two or three times a day, I'm doing this. About two weeks later, on a Saturday morning, one week before the bar mitzvah, I'm in my underwear. I know that's a picture you don't want to have in your mind. But I stand on my little stool, and I finish brushing my teeth, and this is what happens. I try it yet again, and there this happens. I'm able to touch my tongue to my nose. I'm so excited about this, I go running around the house going, I can touch my tongue to my nose. I can be in the Novik tongue-touching-the-nose picture. And I run upstairs to tell my brother, Paul, who's studying his Haftorah, and I go, nah, 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 nah. I can be in the tongue-touching-the-nose picture, and you can. Mm. Just then, he takes his fist, and he hits the bottom of my jaw. I know, pain, blood, saliva, urine, tears, screaming, things that were amazing. I'm just screaming in pain. My tongue blows up. I can no longer touch my tongue to my nose, and I'm running up and down the steps just going, I can't get my tongue I can't put the And I am, the dog is barking. My mother is screaming. My father is yelling. Finally, my dad sits me down at the edge of the bed, my tongue is all blown up. I'm crying because I cannot touch my tongue to my nose any longer. And I just said, why did I have to do that? And my father says to me something I'll never forget. He said to me, you know, your brother is just jealous of you because he has that really small nose from your mother's side of the family. <laughs> I'm not even sure if he is a Novik. 
I didn't really understand that back then. So eventually, over the next week, my tongue shrunk, and I was able, there I was at my brother Paul's bar mitzvah in my purple tuxedo with a big frilly shirt, a little Jewish boy with a turquoise uh, yarmulke that matched my mother's dress, and I was in the picture standing there <laughs> touching my tongue to my nose. Now, so as the years went on, this became, you know, a regular thing. Ten years later, when my cousins Alan and Jennifer were getting married, they got married at a very she-she wedding at the top of the World Trade Center. And she declared that there was going to be no Novik tongue-touching-the-nose picture. There was not going to happen at her very she-she wedding. They had a little jazz band. There was a full orchestra. And my Aunt Rose and my dad had a regular routine at every one of these affairs. He would go hunt down the photographer while she would organize all of the people who could touch their tongue to their nose. So my Aunt Rose is organizing all those people on steps. At, at this point in time, there's like 10, 12 of them. And my dad is running around offering the photographer the same five bucks. <laughs> And at this point in time, of course, the photographer knew that this old Jewish man was going to run around trying to offer him five bucks, and Aunt Rose was trying to keep all the people happy. Look, we want to go eat. We want to go dance. Eventually, the moment just passed, and there was no tongue-touching-the-nose picture at that wedding. A, the history had been stopped at that moment. And by the way, my Aunt Rose was so angry at this that she took her gift back. or at least the one she thought was her gift. <laughs> she got home and opened it up and said, George, we didn't give him a vase. She actually took back the wrong gift. So, you know, eventually, God does work in mysterious ways. Um, Alan and Jennifer eventually got divorced. No surprise there. And both of their kids, I think it's Alan, I think, no, Alan, uh, Ethan, and Jonathan, or Ethan and Evan, they can both touch their tongues through their nose. And eventually, Alan did get remarried to another woman, not Jewish, whose daughter could touch her tongue to her nose. So, as we say, God does work in mysterious ways. Thank you. So... We have some excellent storytellers for you. I want to bring up our <coughs> very first storyteller. Uh, she's been telling tales all of her life and has performed at the Moth both in LA and New York City. Uh, she didn't win, but she did fair to Midland, and she's going to keep on doing that. Uh, she is the chief of, premier, of the premier crew at the New Jersey Storytelling Network and has organized the New Jersey Storytelling Festival for 20 years plus. OK, I apologize. <laughs> I'm getting heckled by our own storytellers. Anyway, before I mess up anything else, I want to bring up our first storyteller. Please welcome Katherine Widener. I told him there might be people here who would object to that. This lighting is so strange that you can't see who's out there. But I know there are people out there who know that I wasn't around for 20 years worth of planning the New Jersey Storytelling Festival. Um, there are people here who have been on the committee longer than I have. But I am president of the New Jersey Storytelling Network, and we are, hey, okay, yes, yes, I want my fans to applaud that. And we do have an annual New Jersey Storytelling Festival this year. It'll be in September, again, at the Howell Living History Farm. 
So that's the end of my commercial. Let me start my storytelling for 2019 by saying this morning I read in the New York Times that there were three good ways that you can reduce your carbon footprint. One is to eat what's in your refrigerator and not waste food. That if the United States um, food waste was considered a country, it would be the third largest food wasting country after the US and China. Interesting thought. So uh, their suggestion was that you eat everything before it expires in your cupboard or your refrigerator. And the second thing was to not get a new phone, because the average American replaces their phone every two years, and that phones do not recycle well. And mostly, you should keep your phone for at least five years. The other thing you should keep longer would be your car. That could lend its way into my story. But the third thing that they said was to keep your clothes longer and to find places to recycle fabric. And you may wonder why I'm talking about recycling and reusing things, because my story has to do, I'm trying to find where I can maybe, oh, ah, I can sort of see people from over here. My story has to do with um, reusable, perhaps. And it begins in 1970, or it begins actually in 1963. My father gets a car, for the first time a second car in the family. And this car is a 1963 Pontiac Le Mans, and he gets it because he has a friend, Frank Strickland, who works for GMAC, and part of what he does is repossess cars. So <laughs> Frank has repossessed this 1963 blue Pontiac Le Mans, and he says to my father, you need this. It's time that you get out of the carpool and have your own car. And he falls for it, he gets the car, but we live in a house that has a one-car garage, and my mother's station wagon has always lived in the garage. So my father paves off a section of the driveway, and the convertible lives in this section of the driveway, which is under a tulip tree. And if you know tulip trees, they drop a lot of stuff. So there is always stuff falling on this car. My father keeps the roof up, but the car always has stuff falling on it, so he's out wiping up the car a lot. And we have a dog who likes to ride in the car, and my father can't resist letting the dog ride in the back seat, and he's a Cocker Spaniel with long ears, so my father and the dog ride around with the dog sitting very proudly in the back seat. The car has a good life, but it always lives outside. Now, you flash forward to 1973, and the car is 10 years old. My father does, did keep cars for a long time, and I graduate from college, and I am given this car. Although my father makes everything a business transaction, I have to sign that the car becomes mine, he transacts a dollar, I have to give him the dollar because we have to have the appropriate bill of sale, because everything in the Widener household was always done very business-like. I get the car, and I bring it to Montclair, where I have an apartment, and this, of course, is the story of the first car, and you know, this is very hard for audience interaction here, because which is what I try and do. And in New Jersey, we always talk about our first cars, and how many of you remember your first cars? And that first car for me was very memorable, because having purchased it from my father for a dollar, a lot of people I knew had to go out and you know, take out loans for a car, but this was mine. I got it with 96,000 miles on it, and the apartment that I lived in 
was a third floor illegal apartment in Montclair. And Mr. Guancion, my landlord, when I looked at the apartment, told me that he and his wife live on the first floor, and his daughter and her husband and her two grandkids live in the middle, and my apartment would be on the third floor, so he doesn't like a lot of noise. Except, of course, with the apartment comes a brand new vacuum cleaner. And it's okay, he said, you can run the vacuum cleaner anytime, because it puts the grandchildren to sleep. So, anytime you want to run a vacuum cleaner, that's a fine, but not a lot of other noise. Mr. Guancione, like many Italians in New Jersey, has a wonderful garden. He grows tomatoes, he grows peppers, three kinds of peppers. Hot to peppers, very hot to peppers, and a long green of peppers for frying. And he also grows lots of flowers, and he's very proud of this, and he likes to show off of his garden. And I like gardening because my family were suburban gardeners. The car lives across the street in a parking lot. And by this time, there are a couple of little holes in the top. But it's my car. I own it. This is good. So I drive the car back and forth between my parents' house in Berkeley Heights, my apartment in Montclair. I work for the Girl Scouts in Essex County. I don't tell this to everyone. But my job in my 20s was to be a district advisor, which meant in my 20s, I was recruiting, training, and organizing volunteer adults to teach leadership skills to girls. I'm working with 30, 40, 50-year-old women, and I'm trying to tell them how they should raise their children to have uh, leadership skills. At this perspective in my life, I think, how dumb was that? That a 23-year-old is trying to tell these 35 and 40-year-old women how to do these things. But I was young and enthusiastic, and it was great fun. I had a good time doing that. And the bonus for this was I got to run special events. So I could be a song leader, Denise. I bet you didn't know. <laughs> that uh, you know, I could do all of these special events, and, and I, I thoroughly loved that. So I was out a lot at night running up these special events with Girl Scouts and, and other people. And uh, coming home late at night, parking my car across the street, coming in, going up the stairs quietly. And I didn't run the vacuum cleaner very much. But I didn't make a whole lot of noise either. So one day, I'm taking the car out for a ride, and I begin to hear this <coughs> noise. And I, I, I pull it over a little bit, and then there's a <coughs> And the engine had fallen out of the car. And it was like a Flintstone car. I could see the bottom. And I don't know what to do. I'm only about a half a mile away from home, so I, I close the door. <laughs> and I start walking down the street. And there was this mechanic that I knew around the corner. And I, I, I go to him, and I say, you know, he's got a, a tow truck that my car had died. And he said, don't worry. I'll." I'll tow it past, and I can get it to a junkyard for you. So I check out. He's going to do this, and I walk back to my apartment, and I'm sobbing by this time. And Mr. Guancion is out front in the garden, and he's looking at his fine marigolds and his wonderful tomatoes and peppers, and I'm crying on the side of the road. And he comes, and he says, what's the matter? And I explain that my car has died, and the engine has fallen out, and it's going to be 
driving by any minute, being towed. And he puts his arm around me. Now, mind you, this is 1975 at this point. We knew a lot then about how to save the world. And he puts his arm around me and he says, don't you worry, these days we kind of recycle everything. It's going to come back as a Cadillac. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I own a Honda Civic now and it's blue. Pretty much the same color as that Pontiac Le Mans. And every once in a while, I talk to that car. That car's 12 years old now. And I say, you're about the same age as that Pontiac Le Mans. It spent the first, um, the first 10 years of its life, pretty much, living in a garage. I spent one interesting eight months in Berkeley Heights, and that's another story of recycling where it had to live in a parking lot. And we bought a house in Hillsboro that had a detached garage. And I thought, I, I can never live with this detached garage. But I did. Now we bought a house in Princeton. And there's no garage at all. And, and I have a, a, the car is just living in the driveway. And I'm thinking that, that maybe this car, too, is going to rust out. But it's blue, like the Le Mans was blue. And maybe, maybe there's another blue car in store for me. It could be. So recycled thoughts, uh, recycled cars, recycled story. It's been told before, but I hope you enjoyed it. Kathy Widener. Very nice. Oh, you brought the lights up a little bit. It was nice. See, as a, I do stand-up comedy a lot, so I'm used to um, not seeing faces in the crowd. So uh, it's nice to see faces. Everybody with a face, please raise their hand. I'll have faces. I love the fact that you have faces. So, all right, we're going to continue our show right now with our next storyteller. Uh, she is a storyteller who's been working in New York since 2003. She has spoken on the Liam McKinney's Tell Your Friends podcast and Dana Rossi's Soundtrack series podcast. She will be at uh, Jude Trader Wolf's Mostly True Things in January. Uh, Jude told a story here about a month ago. And she can be consistently found at the No Name Show at Word Up Community Bookstore in Washington Heights. Please welcome Jennifer Glick. Hello. You all look lovely. I'm 16 years old. I have been a licensed driver for a whole month. I am driving my family's 1979 Velari down Cone Boulevard in Greensboro, North Carolina. That's where my family had moved from Rochester, New York to open a bagel business. It's true. <laughs> That's why it's funny. Um, <laughs> I am on my way to the Carolina Circle Mall to work in a haunted house. I am wearing this beautiful vintage dress that I got for $35, which 1981 money, that's a, a lot to a 16-year-old with a, with a part-time job. 
And this dress is a replica of what Patricia Quinn wore in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. She played the character of Magenta. Yeah, so I'm, I feel, I'm listening to my Pretenders tape. My favorite singer in the world, Chrissy Hind, is singing her signature song. Um, I'm special, I'm so special, I gotta have some of your attention. I'm like, yeah, I am too, Chrissy. I may not be wearing a garter belt and stockings, I may be wearing pantyhose, which as we all know is the most unsexual garment ever created, but I feel really good about myself in this moment. I am on my way to be with my drama club, to be in a haunted house and to yell and scream and scare all those boring jocks and jerks I go to high school with because I'm gonna really have so much fun and be with my friends. And my pretender's tape has finished its side so I have to lean over, pop it open, and flip it, and I turn my head for one, I turn my head for one minute and my steering wheel comes and smacks me in the chest. I am thrown against the back of the bench seat of the car. My car hits the car in front of it, which hits the car in front of it. Yeah, everything stops for about 45 seconds, and then I see blue lights, and then I hear sirens, and I look down. The windows are all intact. I'm not bleeding, I'm breathing, and I wish I was dead. The, the cops do come, they talk to me, they get my phone number. And by some sort of 1981 technical wizardry, they go back to their car and call my dad. And I'm afraid that I'm not gonna be let outside of the house until 1984. I have jacked up his car insurance like crazy. I have gotten him, he's probably just about to go to bed because he had to get up at three o'clock the next morning to go make the bagels. I have to sit and wait for him to show up. And I, I don't know what's gonna happen next. He does show up. He gives the nice policeman all the insurance information. We say goodbye to the red Valari as it gets towed away. I get back into the car, we ride home in silence, and I think everything, my life is over. Not my real life, my social life. And we get back home, and we get back inside the house. And he turns to me and he says, hey kid, you want a drink? Which really meant he wanted one. But for those of you without Jewish parents, that's how it works. I mean, with my mother, it was, I'm cold, put on a sweater. That's, it was that way with him. And I say to him, um, no, Dad, but there's this party that was going to happen afterward. I kind of want to go to it. And miracle of miracles, he takes me. He drops me off at the house of a woman named Nicole, who's a friend of my friend Lisa. And... I walk inside the party in my Rocky Horror Picture Show regalia, and there's Nicole sitting on the couch, sort of holding court, surrounded by 
at, uh, enraptured admirers, and she's wearing something that maybe Scarlett O'Hara would have worn to the barbecue at Twelve Oaks. And I don't know if this is the right place for me, and I try to look around the room and see what else is there, and like, oh, there's the grocery store cola and the grocery store potato chips, and that's not going to do it. I sneak into the kitchen. I open the fridge. Hiding behind the skim milk is one can of natural light. That's not going to do it either. I wander through the kitchen outside in the driveway, and there's a circle of boys in the middle, and they're passing a joint around. Oh, maybe I could get in on that. So I weasel my way into the circle. And the, my friend Lisa's boyfriend, Kurt, is holding forth with some stunning 17-year-old boy wisdom. What's the difference between pussy and parsley? Nobody eats parsley! Ha! And by the time the joint gets to me, it's down to a roach and there's nothing there. And I try to keep it together. I go back inside, look at the fridge. Somebody else got that damn beer. There's no beer, there's no weed. There's nobody here at this party that's ever gonna be cute enough for me to wanna make out with them. I gotta get a ride home. I just do, because if I get home, I can go to bed, and I can pretend n this whole evening never happened. So I go back outside, and there's Kurt standing at the side of the house, so I walk up to him, and I realize, oh, he's pissing on a shrub. Well, Jennifer, usually I like to do this by myself, but if you're into it, could you please give me a ride home? Nah, man, I gotta take Lisa, but why don't you ask my buddy Jeff over there? And I'm like, okay, fine. I walk up to Jeff, I ask him politely, as politely as I can. He says, sure. We get into his dad's old 88 for driving. He's quiet. That's good. I'm fine with it. I just keep telling to myself, if I can get home, it's gonna be okay. If I can get home, I can go to bed, and I can, like Scarlett did, think about it all tomorrow. So we get to my driveway. We, we, right at the end of driveway, right at the curb, he parks the car. He starts doing this. You all know what this means, don't you? You don't have to be male, you don't have to be female, you know what this means. And he gets really chatty all of a sudden. You like that, right? Feels good, right? And if this is the profane, there's not that far of a distance, excuse me, this, this is the sacred, there's not that far of a distance to the profane. And he keeps doing this. And under ordinary circumstances, maybe I could conjure up enough interest to think, oh, he really likes me and respond. Right now, I don't care if he likes me or he doesn't. If he thinks he's ripping this dress, I'm gonna kill him. <laughs> I unbuckle my seatbelt. I open my door. I turn. I shut my door behind me. I walk up the driveway. I get inside the house. And there's my dad, like I knew he would be, sitting at the kitchen table. And I look at him and I say, hey, dad, 
I think I'd like that drink right about now. And he pulls out that bottle of Gallo Hardy Burgundy that we usually saved for Shabbat. <laughs> and whatever it is any of you at your tables have in front of you, it never tasted that good. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Being a gentleman, I was helping her off the stage. Jennifer Glickman, keep on going. One of my people. So just want to remind you, I have a sign-up sheet for um, Two Minute Tales. I'm going to leave that on the table over there. I'll maybe pass it around. If you want to uh, tell a story at the end of her show, please just give me your name. You can give me your email if you want to be on our email list. And you get two minutes to tell your story. Like I said, I just love spontaneous applause. Okay, so uh, we're going to move along now with our third storyteller. Uh, he is uh, an ex-storyteller. He's been a comedian storyteller for over 12 years, performing all over New, York, New England and the Southwest, appearing on the hit podcast Risk by my very good friend Kevin Allison. Kevin Allison has a podcast called Risk, which uh, I've taken his class, an outstanding storyteller. He's open for Pete Holmes, Gary Goldman, Mink Stoll, and Doug Stanhope. His lyrical conversational style lends well to the bizarre events he describes from memory, ranging from his childhood being raised by a paranormal investigator father to his stories of, hiring rock, of hitting rock bottom and acting in a Wild West show in Tombstone, Arizona. Please put your hands together and welcome our next storyteller, Mr. Ian Steffi. Thank you, sir. Wow. This is where the lights come in handy, because this is going to be about shame. Hi, everybody. Um, so when I was 10 years old, uh, I, I was enjoying a time of uh, singing the Lion King soundtrack into a hairbrush in my bedroom. I was jumping up and down. I couldn't wait to be king. And my father opened the door and looked at me. I'm just in mid-pose. And uh, he very, looked very sullen and shut the door. And I heard him and my mom have a fight. So the next day, I was brought to the woods to track deer. That was going to be the way to stop whatever the, f the hell I was dealing with. Um, so we, we went to go track deer, and we were having a conversation in the car. Like, we didn't spend a lot of quality time because he always worked like two, three jobs at a time. So we're in silence, and we're listening to his like Genesis tape, and we're about two hours into driving to New Hampshire, and he lowers the radio down, he looks at me, and he's about to speak, and I'm like, he's going to say something wise. He's going to say the thing that's going to stop me from getting beaten up all the time. What are you going to say? And he says, son, I have something important to tell you. I don't know how to say this, but um, some men are leg men. Others are tit men. Others still are ass men. Now, when it comes to what I find most attractive about your mother, this is the sex talk. This is where he's starting cold. This is the pitch, right? And I've just heard tits and mom in the same sentence. So what am I going to do? I immediately panicked, and I was like, uh, I've seen R-rated movies, because we had HBO for free for a weekend. So that's, I mean, my idea of what sex was at 10 was just ostensibly just genitals mushing, like the sound of balloon animals being made. That's all I knew. It was still better than tits and mom in a sentence. 
and he, he, there's more silence in the car, and we keep driving, and he just goes, look, just don't have sex too young. You'll get bored with it later. So at this point, he's just venting about his marriage, right? So this is going to be informing my sexuality for the rest of my life. Like, we, he wasn't just Catholic, and he was also into medicine. Uh, so there's a lot of guilt just wrapped up in there, right? Because, like, when I hit, like, 16, he's pulling out rubber gloves, and he's like, if you see these, these latex gloves are three times the width of a condom. We wear two pairs of gloves when we deal with AIDS patients. Nighty-night. <laughs> And I remember growing up, like, the Pope had said, I know the Pope had said this at some point, it's like, the only sex you could ever do was missionary. Which made sense to me, because that's the position you could apologize the most from. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, as I get older, I hit, like, 20, and I, like, I finally stopped being kind of a chubby nerd. I'd, I lost a bunch of weight, and we had moved to Tucson. And I've got all these, uh, I'm just new to the dating scene now, and I've got all these sexual phobias wrapped up at the same time. And um, I dated a couple of different girls, and I was very naive, very aw shucks about what I was doing because I was scared. And I eventually befriended one guy on campus. His name was Alex. He wasn't so much a friend as he was just somebody who was right next to me in German class. <laughs> and he was the kind of weird guy that owned Requiem for a Dream. You know what I mean? Like, he owned Midnight Cowboy. He watches it more than once. That's kind of a fucked up person if you think about it. So, like, as a bonding moment, he's like, there's this great weird strip club in Tucson we should go to. And I had never been to a strip club before, and I said, yeah, <laughs> okay, let's do that. I'm, like, 20 years old. So we go to this place called the Bunny Ranch, and the Bunny Ranch, uh, it's right by this stock car racing facility. And uh, the, the first thing I noticed when we're walking into the place is that there were black lights that were on. So right off the bat, I know how much we're violating health code by coming here. It's just an effervescent lightsaber glow spattered on all the walls. <laughs> it's the scariest place. And uh, we get to the stage, and I, 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 like, we're all seated. And it's like a full nude, creepy Arizona law strip club. And uh, my friend kept putting down dollars to get lap dances, and I wasn't letting it happen because, like, I'm, again, I grew up Catholic. All nudity that's ever happened in front of me seemed to be accidental. I was always surprised when that would happen for me. So he keeps sliding dollars in front of me. I'm saying, no, 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 no. And we kept sneaking in the parking lot and drinking raspberry Smirnoff vodka and coming back inside. My courage is working up a little bit more. He slides a dollar in front of me, and I finally let it happen. And this girl gets off the stage, and she starts doing a lap dance in front of me. So where do I go? Catholic guilt. So the <laughs> It's like my mind thinks she doesn't know she's naked. So what do you do politely if you've never been in the situation before? I maintained eye contact, which is creepier than looking down. I locked eyes with this girl and I kept going like, what is your real name and your values? Like, that's not good for her. <sighs> so, like, I'm working up more and more courage and Alex is like, well, I got an idea. I got 50 bucks. Let's bring you to the champagne room. Let's really turn your hair white. I'm like, I I'd never heard of anything outside of the champagne room outside, like, rap music or anything like that. I was like, okay, maybe some dark, creepy Caligula shit's happening back there. I'll find out. So I go back there and it's... It's all dark, um, and then this girl comes into the room, and she had, like, sharpie eyebrows and a permanent state of anger. Um, she was just not, just, like, broad, like, Ernie and Bert eyebrows. And she doesn't dance. She just takes all of her clothes off and bends over in front of my face to Genuine's pony. So I'm just like, and what do we, I don't know what to do. What's the, she's just, like, an inch from my face. I just looked. I looked. And I'm not... 
I'm not there to shame whatever her life was or what she's dealing with anatomically. I just never seen this before. But her, I'm sorry, you all seem like nice people, but <laughs> we're already here now. But her, her, her asshole was, was big, and I, I'd never seen that before. I'm sorry. I'm telling you, though, this is part of the story. And so I was freaked out. And I get pulled out of there, and my friend's like, hey, would you enjoy that? And I was like, I'm medically concerned for this woman. We need to talk to her. I've never, oh my God, is she okay? And, and my friend's like, oh, uh, and he only seems to think that lap dances cure every problem that night. So he's like, I'll get you one more to alleviate whatever the hell that was. So he gets, this time he gets three strippers and they all bring me up to the stage and they're all writhing all over me like Bram Stoker's Dracula's Brides, just like, undulating, and I, I'm seated in a chair, and they're thrusting at me, and I, I'm still trying to maintain eye, con eye contact somewhere, and um, one of them starts purring uh, here. I have one of those. I mean, a few of us do, and this, she starts purring here, which is like a physical reaction, and a, I, I, it happens, and she looks up at me, and she goes, you shouldn't have made fun of Sean Bray's asshole, and before I can say anything, she bit me. Oh, I don't mean like some Eartha Kit, brrr, I'm Catwoman kind of bite. She bit me so hard. I hit some good notes in karaoke. Um, she bit me in, in such a way where I screamed like a John Steinbeck housewife had just lost her firstborn. I screamed so loud in front of a bunch of people. And I ran out of the strip club and into my car. I could feel blood pooling in my underwear. She had bit me that hard. It was the separation of church and state, as you call it, the crease, the most sensitive part of a man's body. Really, we don't talk about it, but it's the crease. Um, so she bit me, and I'm bleeding, and I'm driving in the car, and I'm fucking crying, and <laughs> I get home, and I'm running into the house, and who's in my house, the only one awake, is my father. He's reading the paper. He's still a nurse. He's creepy, but he's still a nurse. And I, I tell him what had happened. And I was like, I'm afraid I got something. I don't know. I'm just I'm bleeding and I'm scared. And he goes, all right, this is um, very serious. What I need you to do is I need you to go upstairs. I need you to take a shower and take a bottle of isopropyl rubbing alcohol. We have a fresh bottle upstairs. Just open it up and dump the whole thing on it. The whole thing, time's a factor. I was like, oh, shit. So I ran up the stairs and I started taking a shower. Um, and I dumped the whole bottle all over everything and like a sloppy nervous mafia veterinarian just and I'm screaming bloody murder and I come downstairs and I'm just throbbing in pain and hoarse from screaming and I said to my father it's done and he said well that's not actually going to do anything for you you're not going to catch anything that way I mean that's ridiculous but uh, just be nicer to women next time Oh, another one of those predictable stories <laughs> that we've heard and seen a thousand times, Ian. Yeah, right. Anyway, um, uh, Ian is available for children's parties and um, bar mitzvahs. So, uh, no, great. Thank you. Give him a hand. Thank you very much.
An honest appraisal of a uh, young man's first venture. Okay, so our next storyteller is an award-winning storyteller, teacher, writer, whose work is seen throughout the United States. She is the founder of No, We Won't Shut Up, which features diverse female voices speaking out against racism, bigotry, wage theft, sexual assault, rape, and gentrification. Uh, she is currently on tour with her one-woman show, Nancy Drewinsky and the Search for the Missing Letter. Please welcome a very good friend of mine, Miss Robin Beatty. Oh, I just love when the microphone's the right height for me. It doesn't happen very often. So I'm really glad to be here in New Jersey. I want to first state before I even do any, anything, any storytelling or anything else is I live in Brooklyn, yes, but I am not a reverse bridge and tunnel person, no. I grew up in New Jersey. So can we give a big round of applause for my home state, New Jersey? It was quite an upbringing. I was by the Jersey Shore, Asbury Park, and that's a whole nother story. So I've been doing a lot of stories going back in my life. I guess, you know, when you tell personal stories, you gotta look at your life, right? So I've been going back to a time that I think of as the time when I went from being a kid to being an older kid. You know, from my teens, into my 20s, which was in the 70s, so. It's the 70s, I'm about 21, 22, and I need a place to live. You see, my street theater company, the Rapid Transit Guerrilla Communications Theater, had just broken up our little commune. We all were gonna go off and individuate and find our own homes. And I didn't quite know what to do until somebody pointed me in the direction of an efficiency apartment. An efficiency apartment, I learned, is like a small studio that has a kitchen, like in a little nook. It's one big room and there was a small closet, which looked very large to me because I could put my single bed in there. And that was how it was. And I moved in. I lived alone for the first time in my life. Me, my cat, and the coleuses I had been accumulating. I loved it. It was great. I lived in this big apartment building, and I didn't know anybody, which I really liked also. But I looked around, if I even had thought about talking to anyone, and Everybody there was old. I mean, old. Like, even older than I am now. That old. And I kind of didn't know what to say to them. Like, hi, how are you and your old person self doing? And they didn't seem to be talking to each other, so it didn't matter. I had my life, and that was that. And I loved my apartment. I looked out, well, I looked out on a fire escape, but I didn't care. My coleuses grew, and my cat, I would let him out on the fire escape, and he'd come back, and, or I'd leave a window open. This was 70s Chicago. And I just figured I'd live here until something else came along and my life changed. And then one day, 
note was slipped under my door. And when I got home from work, I picked it up and I read it. It said that the building had been sold to a big corporation downtown Chicago in the Loop. I recognized the address. It was near one of the places I used to waitress. And that the rents were going to be changed, elevated. I mean, I had been paying $45 a month. That was like a big deal for me. But 1970, that was still pretty reasonable. I was paying my $45 a month, and now they were going to go and double it. More than double it. I would have to pay $100 a month. Well, that did not make me happy. I didn't know how I was going to be able to afford it. I mean, at that time, I was still going to theater. I was doing the theater full time. I was still working my job full time. And I was going to school full time. So I didn't know what I could add in or take out. But as I went to, to work the next day and I went on to my rehearsal, I kept you know, flipping it around in my mind. Let's see, if I could change this. Maybe I could do that. I could take one last class. And my head just kept spinning in circles, trying to figure out how I could make it work, because I really didn't feel like moving. I just didn't want to. I loved my place, my life. I, my friends could come over, and nobody was bothered by the noise we made. But this little worm kept trying to get its way into my brain. What about all those old people? Now, I tried to resist, but it kept coming back. What about all those old people? I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to think about it, but damn, my conscience started kicking me in the butt. Because, by the way, my theater company, which did all political theater type stuff, we did stuff on Vietnam and women and, and, you know, and racism and sexism, the whole Megillah. We had just done a play on gentrification where a greedy landlord kicks out the old people who'd been living there their whole lives. Damn it. What a fucking coincidence. I saw I had no choice. So the very next morning, before I got to work, I began my investigative process. I started knocking on doors. I wanted to find out what other people thought, what they could do. And they told me. People talked to me easily. And there was Ed. He was a disabled vet. He was on a pension or on disability, and there was Edith, who lived with her mother, Dagmar, who was even older than she was, and they were living on a pension and Social Security. And then there was John, and there was Sandy, and each one of them had a story that told me their incomes were fixed, that they were paying all they could, and that they were scared. So, I didn't really want to do this. But you know, sometimes you get backed in a position, you say, what, what am I going to do? This is what I'm going to do. And so, this is what I did. I decided, 
I made up a, a list of all the phone numbers they should call, and I stuck it under everybody's door. But then I went and I talked to everybody. I said, are you making these calls? Are you calling the alderman? Are you calling the press? Are you calling the landlord? Can you remind your neighbor? Now, mind you, there must have been about 50 apartments in this building. It was, it was large medium large for Chicago. It had five different entrances. It meant you had to go out to go into the next, um, next section of the building. So I spent a lot of time going up and down and up and down and up and down. And people said they were calling. I was calling, but nothing happened. And finally, the workmen started coming. So first they started like fixing up the outside of the building. That took a little while. And then they started working on the inside of, you know, the common eras, you know, on the stairs and in the hallways. And one day I come home and, from work and I find there's a note under my door. It's from Maggie, the old lady who lives right across the street from me. Old. I think she must be the age I am right now, which is a little humiliating for me to think back on. But she was old to me. And she said, Somebody had come into her building and they were measuring it. And she didn't know why. And that's when I figured I couldn't do this alone and we couldn't do this alone and I called in the army. Well, I called uh, an organization I had seen at their storefront. It was called the Lakeview Latin American Citizens Council. I called them and I said, so, I explained the situations. So, look, we're citizens too. I don't think there are any Latin Americans among us, but can you help us? And the lady on the other side, she laughed and she goes, set up a meeting and I'll send someone over. So I set up a meeting. There must have been 40 people there. We were in Maggie's apartment and we were in the hallway and up the stairs and down the stairs and I opened up my place we're all gathered there just waiting when up the stairs walks this really tall woman, Gloria Perez. Dark, dark black hair, brown eyes that just looked at us seriously. She had her hair back in a bit of a bun and she carried a notebook and she looked no nonsense as she said, so tell me about it. So we told her, she goes, Look, this is happening all over Chicago, and in your neighborhood, this is the beginning. Your landlord is in the vanguard. This is what you have to do. She told us to continue with the phone calls, and then she gave us all these press numbers that we should call. She says, put, win put like signs out your windows saying, rent strike, we won't pay. Get the landlord off my back, etc., etc. And then she said, talk to everybody in the neighborhood. And we did that. Nobody called us back. Nobody talked to us. It seemed like we were running like a rat on a wheel, round and round and round. And then Gloria said to me, we're going to ratchet up the pressure because you know what landlords like him don't want? Bad PR. 
So she had me organize all the seniors. She brought down two buses. She had everybody get on the bus. She had big signs made already for us. And they, everyone got in with their canes and their walkers and even a wheelchair or two. And we go down to the loop. And as we go down, we practice our chants. No rent hike, no rent hike, no rent hike, no rent hike. Oh, they were loud. Well, as loud as really old people could be. When we get down to the loop, we get out right in front of a very fancy building. I could see why he needed our money. And the press was waiting. Print, television, radio. There weren't any podcasts, but there were alternative newspapers. Everybody was there. And the seniors are helped out, and they start circling in front of the building. No rent hike, save our homes. No rent hike, save our homes. Around and around. And I could see as I watched that every now and then one of the old peoples would be called out and by one of the press. And the next morning, our pictures were all over the newspapers. The next morning on the early morning news, we were on every single station in Chicago. I'd see one of the ladies or one of the guys, and we started talking about it. Everybody was really excited. What's going to happen? Maybe we made a difference. Oh, boy, etc., etc. And we keep waiting. Come on. What's going on? And it took about a week, but then finally Gloria called me and said, get everybody together, okay? So we all came, same place, and Gloria walked in. And this time she was smiling. And she said, guess what? It worked. We won. And everybody started cheering and screaming. Now they were very loud. And they were so excited. And when they, everybody calmed down, she said, anybody who's been living there you know, for the past two years or more, your rent stays frozen. Anyone who comes in, they've got to pay $100, and we're going to do work on the apartment. And that's how it was. And that's how it went. And as I looked around, I realized we had gained more than saving our homes because now we were talking to each other. Now we were laughing together. Now we were not just a building of strangers, but a family. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Uh, great story of uh, 
community organizing and uh, becoming a community, especially. So our uh, next storyteller is a Brooklyn native, talking about Brooklyn, a uh, native comic and storyteller. He began his comedy career in his junior year of high school and has never looked back. Currently, he is making a name for himself in the New York comedy circuit while also graduating from Hunter College. He recently graduated with a, a degree, his um, advanced degree. By night, you can catch him hosting The Moth uh, or performing at different venues throughout New York City, but during the day, he's a New York City comedian. Please, a New York City teacher. Uh, please welcome Andrew McGill. Woo! Wow. Sometimes when you read out the credits, I was like, really? Is that what I do? Uh, let's give it up for Hopewell staff. Thank you, Joey, and everyone here. Storytellers you've seen. How are we doing? Are we good? Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, all the good stuff. Um, so yeah, um, back when I was in uh, the seventh grade, I didn't look like this. I was uh, shorter, I was chubbier, I had glasses. I basically looked like the black Harry Potter, but I didn't have any magic or um, friends. Uh, <laughs> it's okay, it's all right. Um, but I remember I was walking through the lunchroom one day and I saw these kids, and they were having a jolly good time. They're laughing, they're playing. And I walk over, and I just wanted to see what, what's going on, what are they doing. And they're throwing cards down on the table. They're laughing, and I look a little closer. And I saw it was kids from my, my class. It was this kid named Daniel Kamuda. He was playing. And I go over to him, I was like, yo, Daniel, what's going on here? And he's like, yo, we're playing Yu-Gi-Oh. And I was like, Yu-Gi what? And he's like, it's Yu-Gi-Oh. And I was like, oh, man, that's cool. And I was like, yo, can you teach me some of the rules? And he's like, yo, better yet. Just go home and just watch the game. Just watch it. it. It comes on like right after school. And I was like, boom, I'll just watch it. So I went home and I watched Yu-Gi-Oh! And it was amazing. It's, it's, it's great. It's everything a growing boy needs. It was, match, it was monsters. It was magic. It was friendship. It was beautiful. It was awesome. And I get addicted to uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! And I started like watching it in Japanese. My mom got really worried about me. Um, I, and I, I come back to school the next day and I was like, you got to teach me. I was like, you have to teach me. And he's like, I got you. And these guys become my crew. It was me, Daniel, this kid named Chris, this guy named Shunman. And we would play Yu-Gi-Oh! every single day during lunchtime. And I started to, you know, I got the, the Yu-Gi-Oh! dual disc. I got um, these different sleeves for these cards. Yu-Gi-Oh! is just a Japanese card game. Um, that you play in a basement somewhere. But I got these cards, I got a little thing on my wrist that I can play, and it was amazing, it was really cool. And then I remember these guys uh, telling me there was gonna be a Yu-Gi-Oh tournament uh, at this place in Kings Games in Brooklyn. And I was like, yo, this is great, can't wait to go. And I was like, you know what, I'll just ask my dad to drop me off. Uh, and my dad, um, he drives a New York uh, City taxi cab, and he's a weird dude, he's very strange. And I said, hey, Ma, I'll, just, I'll just ask him to drop me off. And he picks me up this one morning, and I get in the front of the cab, and it's a very awkward uh, ride. And then we get to King's Games, and I come out the cab, and all my friends are like, yo, what's up? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I had to come from the cab. What's up, what's up, what's up? And uh, one of my friends is like, why are you in the front seat? <laughs> I was like, what? I was like, yo, shut up, man. You know, there's something wrong with the back. Don't worry about it. So literally, we're standing outside of King's Games, and it's a huge line of kids. And 
uh, I remember my dad, he like lowers the window and he's like, hey, what time do you want me to pick you up? And I was like, uh, four. And everyone's like, why is your driver yelling at you? And I was like, don't worry about it. Let's just go inside King's Game. So we go inside the shop. And the shop is great. It's amazing. It's like filled with all this memorabilia. There's like Mega Man. There's uh, there's different video games. Different like really great um, anime shows that I really love. And downstairs is where the magic happened. It was Yu-Gi-Oh Fight Club. It was one-on-one -on -one Yu -Gi -Oh tournaments. It smelled like um, whatever inhalers smell like and like virginity all like wrapped in one. And so we're downstairs. We're playing, and I lose track of time. I lose track of time, people. And I asked one of my friends, I was like, hey, what time is it? And he's like, yo, it's 4.35. And I was like, oh, no. So I run back upstairs, and I see my dad, like, perusing the store. And I was like, oh, this is bad. This is really bad. And I was like, hey, let's just get out of here. And he's like, this is, like, very interesting. I was like, you don't use words like interesting. Let's go. So we leave. We get in the car. And it's also very silent. And he drives me back to the house, to my mom's house. And he's like, hey, I just want to come upstairs and talk to your mom. So my mom and dad are separated. And he's like, yeah, I just want to talk to your mom. I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. So he comes upstairs. And my mom's like, hey, how was that thing that you were at? And I was like, yeah, it was fine. It was great. She doesn't care. She doesn't know about you, Gail. And he's like, hey, did you know that Andrew's in a gang? And I was like, what? In a gang? She's like, in a gang? And he's like, yeah, he's in the Yakuza's. I was like, what? In the Yakuza's? He's like, yeah, in the Yakuza's. He's like, yeah, I saw him come out of this basement with all these Chinese people. And I was like, wait, hold on one second. The Yakuza's are Japanese, and I think those people are Chinese. But whatever, but I'm not in the Yakuza's. And he's like, nope, he's in the Yakuza's. I'm like, no, I'm not in the Yakuza's. He's like, yeah, he is. They let me buy a weapon at this store. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, they let me buy a weapon without tax. And I was like, what's going on? And he pulls out this plastic bag, and he reaches inside, and he pulls out this giant blade from the movie Blade 2. If anyone ever saw the movie Blade 2 with Wesley Snipes, and there's this giant circular blade, and it had different attachments, and he pulls it out, and he pulls it out, he pulls it out. And I was like, hey, man, it says Blade 2 on it, right in the middle. And he's like, yeah, Blade 2 cut people. And I was like, what? Why would you put that on a blade? And he's like, no, he's in Yakuza's. Look at this, look at this. Everyone's like freaking out. My mom's freaking out. I'm freaking out. And I was like, no, guys, I'm not in the Yakuza's. And I pull out my Yu-Gi-Oh cards. And I was like, I was playing Yu-Gi-Oh. And then I proceeded to explain Yu-Gi-Oh to my superstitious Haitian parents. And I whip out a card, and I was like, yo, guys, this is a dark magician. He has 25,000 attack points, 1,300 life, 1,300 defense points. If you put him down, you know, he'll attack your monsters. We have different spell cards, different trap cards that you can attack to this monster. And I was like, yo, this is a blue-eyed white dragon. He's beautiful. He's shiny. Look at this shiny. I put it down, and they're all silent. My mom's holding like this. My dad's like this. And I was like, you know, I'll just double down. I'll just keep going into it. I was like, so you guys know what? So Yu-Gi-Oh! all started when these different Egyptian gods, you know, they were battling each other because, you know, they wanted to trap, the trap their gods into these cards. And I was like, I just want to be a Yu-Gi-Oh champion because if I beat someone, I can send them to the Shadow Realm. So the Shadow Realm is a plate, it's devoid of light, it's darkness, and that's where people's souls go after you beat them in Yu-Gi-Oh. And they all stand silently. And I was like, guys, I'm just trying to be the Yu-Gi-Oh champ. And it's just silent, just like this. Looking at me. I see my mom hold my dad's hand. I was like, oh, I've never seen this before. 
And they're like, they're shaking their heads. They're like, you know what? You're not in a gang. You're not in a gang. You're What? And I did what you guys did here. I laughed. And just a side note, if anyone ever accuses you of being a demon, don't laugh because it makes you look like more of a demon. So I giggled. And of course, they thought I was possessed. And they're freaking out. They're like, we got to call somebody. We got to call the pastor. Oh, my gosh, what's going on? Ah. But we're poor, so they didn't call anyone. Um, and they just did, uh, you know, Haitian corporal punishment, which is basically like an Adele song. It's, you know, very simple. It's long. <laughs> British. <laughs> but at the end, everyone's going to cry. Basically, that's what happens. So whatever. They do what they do, and I'm crying. And I was like, you know, I thought that was over. I thought that would be the worst thing ever. Um, but then they're like, hey, you have to burn your cards. I was like, burn the cards? I was like, no, not the cards. It's like I've, 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 I've been through so much with these cards. I've spent so much money. Like I spent like $50 on these cards. That's a lot of money for me. And they're like, no, you got to burn them. So I'm sitting over the, the kitchen sink, and I'm just lighting these cards up. And I, tears running down my face. I'm like, oh, that's the card. You know, I, I, I played with Shun Man. I beat him for it. Oh, Daniel gave me this card a couple weeks ago. Man, I, I waited so much for this card, and I'm burning, I'm burning. I'm just crying, crying, burning. And all, until all the cards were done, and I'm just sitting there. It was terrible. And I thought that would be the worst thing. But then I had to go to church on Sunday. And I go to church, and I'm in this heavy suit and I'm sitting there in the front row pastor comes up and he's like hey I want to invite brother McGill up to the stage because he had a bout with a demon yesterday and I just wanted to come up and you're just going to lay hands on him for a second you know that happens and then I have to go back to school on Monday and I have to face my friends and I can't tell my 12-year-old friends that I was possessed by a demon and my mom had to burn my cards. So I get to school and I rock up and it's lunchtime and it's kind of just like, hey, what's up, Drew? What's going on? What are you trying to play cards? And I was like, nah. I did whatever, you know, seventh grader do, does. I just pretended I was cooler than both of them. I was just like, you know what, man? Yu-Gi-Oh's lame, man. I'm just going to start talking to girls. That's what I do. And I like walked away and I was standing in the lunch line and I'm, you know, just like grabbing, grabbing some stuff and I'm walking over and I see them still having a ball, having a good time. I was like, you know what, this is, this is my shot. You know, I'm just, this is, maybe this is what I needed to push me over to start, you know, being a man and start talking to girls and stuff. And I see this one girl standing over, over there. She had really long black hair and I was like, yo. She looks good. I was like, I might just ask her if she wants to like share this chocolate milk with me or something. And I like walk over to her and I like tap her on the shoulder. And she turns around and it was my friend Chris. <laughs> he had really black hair and really long hair. And he's like, hey man, you gonna go play Yu-Gi-Oh? <laughs> and I was like, you know what, shit, man, I'll just go take a 
take a seat. And I sat there, and I never played Yu-Gi-Oh again because I was too afraid that my parents would beat me. And uh, recently, my uh, my dad was driving me someplace, and I asked him. I was, I was just out of curiosity. I was like, "Hey, what'd you ever do with that knife?" I was like, "You bought that knife for like forty dollars. What'd you do with it?" And he looked at me dead serious in the face, and he was just like, "Are you in that gang again?" <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Have a great night. Andrew and Miguel, thanks, man. So, um, you guys have a good time with our regular show? A lot of great stories. Um, can we get all of our storytellers up here, Ian and Robin? Can we get everyone up here just for a bow? Can you just come up here, Jennifer, Ian, Robin, Catherine? Yep, come on up, just walk right up. We're gonna line up here. Can, can somebody take a picture of all of us? I just wanna, I forgot to take a picture. Get, get all close, let's all get close. Can somebody take a picture? Get all close, no, no, close, close. Come, come on, all close, 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 close by, close by, somebody, somebody just take a picture. Take a picture, thank you very much. A couple of pictures, and if we can get that, and I wanna get a, uh, someone to, uh, Picture, thank you, and you're going to be emailing that to me so I can post it on Facebook. Oh, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Great, thank you much. Thank you very much. All of our storytellers, give them a hand. Wonderful stories tonight. A couple of very important announcements. Our next, this really happened. You can leave now. Oh, we can yeah, you can go up to the stage. You had a great time up there. Uh, you know, you get uh, two people talking. They were telling more stories. Um, our next storytelling night is uh, Friday, February 8th. We have outstanding storytellers, uh, Jim Brawley, Martin Dougherty, I forgot the rest, but just people who have been on The Moth and been on Risk and been on uh, all sorts of The Liar Show. Um, and that is going to be uh, Friday, um, February 8th. Uh, coming up here, make sure you check the website for the Hopewell Theater because there's some great spoken word shows coming up, stand-up comedy. A very good friend of mine, Carol Montgomery, does a show called Women of a Certain Age. That's going to be uh, towards the end of January. I think it's, uh, I forget which night that is. It's a Saturday evening, but check that out. Phenomenal stand-up comedy. So I want to thank you all who came out tonight, all, uh, all of you. I hope that you enjoyed the stories. Check the website. My name is Joe Yanovic, and take care. Good night. Bye-bye.